Chapter Two of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two. One. It was a frail and blue and lonely Carol who trotted to the flat of the Johnson Marburys for Sunday evening supper. Mrs. Marbury was a neighbor and friend of Carol's sister. Mr. Marbury, a traveling representative of an insurance company. They made a specialty of sandwich-salad coffee lap-suppers, and they regarded Carol as their literary and artistic representative. She was the one who could be depended upon to appreciate the Caruso phonograph record, and the Chinese lantern which Mr. Marbury had brought back as his present from San Francisco. Carol found the Marburys admiring, and therefore admirable. This September Sunday evening she wore a net frock with a pale pink lining. A nap had soothed away the faint lines of tiredness beside her eyes. She was young, naive, stimulated by the coolness. She flung her coat at the chair in the hall of the flat, and exploded into the green plush living-room. The familiar group were trying to be conversational. She saw Mr. Marbury, a woman teacher of gymnastics in a high school, a chief clerk from the great northern railway offices, a young lawyer. But there was also a stranger a thick tall man of thirty-six or seven, with stolid brown hair, lips used to giving orders, eyes which followed everything good-naturedly, and clothes which you could never quite remember. Mr. Marbury boomed. "'Carol, come over here and meet Doc Kennicott. Dr. Will Kennicott of Gopher Prairie. He does all our insurance examining up in that neck of the woods, and they do say he's some doctor.' She edged toward the stranger and murmured nothing in particular. Carol remembered that Gopher Prairie was a Minnesota wheat prairie town of something over three thousand people. "'Pleased to meet you,' stated Dr. Kennicott. His hand was strong, the palm soft, but the back weathered, showing golden hairs against firm red skin. He looked at her as though she was an agreeable discovery. She tugged her hand free and fluttered, I must go out to the kitchen and help Mrs. Marbury." She did not speak to him again till, after she had heated the rolls and passed the paper napkins, Mr. Marbury captured her with a loud, "'Oh, quit fussing now! Come over here and sit down and tell us how's tricks!' He herded her to a sofa with Dr. Kennicott, who was rather vague about the eyes, rather drooping of bulky shoulder, as though he was wondering what he was expected to do next. As their host left them, Kennicott awoke. Marbury tells me you're a high mogul in the public library. I was surprised. Didn't hardly think you were old enough. I thought you were a girl, still in college, maybe. Oh, I'm dreadfully old. I expect to take a lipstick and to find a gray hair any morning now. Huh. You must be frightfully old. Probably too old to be my granddaughter, I guess. Thus in the Vale of Arcady, nymph and satyr beguiled the hours precisely thus, and not in honeyed pentameters, discoursed Elaine and the worn Sir Lancelot in the pleached alley. "'How do you like your work?' asked the doctor. "'It's pleasant, but sometimes I feel shut off from things. The steel stacks and the everlasting cards smeared all over with red rubber stamps. Don't you get sick of the city?' "'St. Paul? Why, don't you like it?' I don't know of any lovelier view than when you stand on Summit Avenue and look across Lower Town to the Mississippi Cliffs and the Upland Farms beyond. I know, but, of course, 
I've spent nine years around the Twin Cities, took my B.A. and M.D. over at the U., and had my internship in a hospital in Minneapolis. But still, oh well, you don't get to know folks here, way you do up home. I feel I've got something to say about running Gopher Prairie, but you take it in a big city of two, three hundred thousand, and I'm just one flea on the dog's back. And then I like country driving, and the hunting in the fall. Do you know Gopher Prairie at all? No, but I hear it's a very nice town. Nice? Say honestly. Of course, I may be prejudiced, but I've seen an awful lot of towns. One time I went to Atlantic City for the American Medical Association meeting, and I spent practically a week in New York. But I never saw a town that had such up-and-coming people as Gopher Prairie. Bresnahan, you know, the famous auto manufacturer, he comes from Gopher Prairie. Born and brought up there. And it's a darn pretty town. Lots of fine maples and box elders, and there's two of the dandiest lakes you ever saw, right near town. And we've got seven miles of cement walks already, and building more every day. Course, a lot of these towns still put up with plank walks, but not for us, you bet. Really? Why was she thinking of Stuart Snyder? Gopher Prairie is going to have a great future. Some of the best dairy and wheat land in the state right near there. Some of it selling right now at one fifty an acre, and I bet it will go up to two and a quarter in ten years. Is, do you like your profession? Nothing like it. Keeps you out, and yet you have a chance to loaf in the office for a change. I don't mean that way. I mean, it's such an opportunity for sympathy. Dr. Kennicott launched into a heavy, Oh, these Dutch farmers don't want sympathy. All they need is a bath and a good dose of salts. Carol must have flinched, for instantly he was urging, What I mean is, I don't want you to think I'm one of these old salts and quinine peddlers, but I mean, so many of my patients are husky farmers that I suppose I get kind of case-hardened. It seems to me that a doctor could transform a whole community, if he wanted to, if he saw it. He's usually the only man in the neighborhood who has any scientific training, isn't he? Yes, that's so, but I guess most of us get rusty. We land in a rut of obstetrics and typhoid and busted legs. What we need is women like you to jump on us. It'd be you that would transform the town. No, I couldn't. Too flighty. I did used to think about doing just that, curiously enough, but I seem to have drifted away from the idea. Oh, I'm a fine one to be lecturing you. No, you're just the one. You have ideas, without having lost feminine charm. Say, don't you think there's a lot of these women that go out for all these movements and so on that sacrifice? After his remarks upon suffrage, he abruptly questioned her about herself. His kindliness and the firmness of his personality enveloped her, and she accepted him as one who had a right to know what she thought and wore and ate and read. He was positive. He had grown from a sketched-in stranger to a friend, whose gossip was important news. She noticed the healthy solidity of his chest. His nose, which had seemed irregular and large, was suddenly virile. She was jarred out of this serious sweetness when Marbury bounced over to them and, with horrible publicity, yammered, "'Say, what do you think you two are doing? Telling fortunes or making love?' "'Let me warn you that the doc is a frisky bachelor, Carol. 
Come on now, folks, shake a leg. Let's have some stunts or a dance or something." She did not have another word with Dr. Kennicott until their parting. "'Been a great pleasure to meet you, Miss Milford. May I see you sometime when I come down again? I'm here quite often, taking patients to hospitals for majors and so on.' "'Why, what's your address?' You can ask Mr. Marbury next time you come down, if you really want to know. Want to know? Say you wait. 2. Of the love-making of Carol and Will Kennicott there is nothing to be told which may not be heard on every summer evening, on every shadowy block. They were biology and mystery, their speech was slang phrases and flares of poetry, their silences were contentment or shaky crises when his arm took her shoulder. All the beauty of youth, first discovered when it is passing, and all the commonplaceness of a well-to-do unmarried man encountering a pretty girl at the time when she is slightly weary of her employment and sees no glory ahead nor any man she is glad to serve. They liked each other honestly, they were both honest. She was disappointed by his devotion to making money but she was sure that he did not lie to patients, and that he did keep up with the medical magazines. What aroused her to something more than liking was his boyishness when they went tramping. They walked from St. Paul down the river to Mendota, Kennicott more elastic-seeming in a cap and a soft crepe shirt, Carol youthful in a tam of mole velvet, a blue serge suit with an absurdly and agreeably broad turn-down linen collar and frivolous ankles above athletic shoes. The high bridge crosses the Mississippi, mounting from low banks to a palisade of cliffs. Far down beneath it on the St. Paul side, upon mud-flats, is a wild settlement of chicken-infested gardens and shanties patched together from discarded signboards, sheets of corrugated iron and planks fished out of the river. Carol leaned over the rail of the bridge to look down at this Yangtze village. In delicious imaginary fear she shrieked that she was dizzy with the height, and it was an extremely human satisfaction to have a strong male snatch her back to safety, instead of having a logical woman teacher or librarian sniff, well, if you're scared, why don't you get away from the rail then? From the cliffs across the river Carol and Kennicott looked back at St. Paul on its hills, an imperial sweep from the dome of the cathedral to the dome of the state capitol. The river road led past rocky field slopes, deep glens, woods flamboyant now with September, to Mendota, white walls and a spire among trees beneath a hill, old world in its placid ease. And for this fresh land the place is ancient. Here is the bold stone house which General Sibley, the king of fur traders, built in 1835, with plaster of river mud and ropes of twisted grass for laths it has an air of centuries. In its solid rooms Carol and Kennicott found prints from other days which the house had seen, tailcoats of robin's egg blue, clumsy Red River carts laden with luxurious furs, whiskered Union soldiers in slant forage caps and rattling sabers. It suggested to them a common American past, and it was memorable because they had discovered it together. They talked more trustingly, more personally, as they trudged on. They crossed the Minnesota River in a rowboat ferry. They climbed the hill to the round stone tower of Fort Snelling. They saw the junction of the Mississippi and the Minnesota, and recalled the men who had come here eighty years ago. 
Maine lumbermen, York traders, soldiers from the Maryland hills. It's a good country, and I'm proud of it. Let's make it all that those old boys dreamed about. The unsentimental Kennicott was moved to vow. Let's. Come on, come to Gopher Prairie. Show us. Make the town. Well, make it artistic. It's mighty pretty, but I'll admit we aren't any too darn artistic. Probably the lumberyard isn't as scrumptious as all these Greek temples. But go to it. Make us change. I would like to, some day. Now, you'd love Gopher Prairie. We've been doing a lot with lawns and gardening the past few years, and it's so homey. The big trees and... and the best people on earth. And keen. I bet Luke Dawson... Carol but half listened to the names. She could not fancy their ever becoming important to her. I bet Luke Dawson has got more money than most of the swells on Summit Avenue. And Miss Sherwin in the high school is a regular wonder, reads Latin like I do English. And Sam Clark, the hardware man, he's a corker, not a better man in the state to go hunting with. And if you want culture, besides Vida Sherwin, there's Reverend Warren, the congregational preacher, and Professor Mott, the superintendent of schools, and Guy Pollock, the lawyer. They say he writes regular poetry. And... and Ramey Wetherspoon. He's not such an awful boob when you get to know him, and he sings swell. And... and there's plenty of others. Lime Cass. Only, of course, none of them have your finesse, you might call it. But they don't make him any more appreciative, and so on. Come on, we're ready for you to boss us. They sat on the bank below the parapet of the old fort, hidden from observation. He circled her shoulder with his arm. Relaxed after the walk, a chill nipping her throat, conscious of his warmth and power, she leaned gratefully against him. You know I'm in love with you, Carol. She did not answer, but she touched the back of his hand with an exploring finger. You say I'm so darn materialistic. How can I help it unless I have you to stir me up? She did not answer. She could not think. You say a doctor could cure a town the way he does a person. Well, you cure the town of whatever ails it, if anything does, and I'll be your surgical kit. She did not follow his words, only the blurring resoluteness of them. She was shocked, thrilled, as he kissed her cheek and cried, There's no use saying things and saying things and saying things. Don't my arms talk to you, now? Oh, please, please. She wondered if she ought to be angry, but it was a drifting thought, and she discovered that she was crying. Then they were sitting six inches apart, pretending that they had never been nearer, while she tried to be impersonal. I would like to, would like to see Gopher Prairie. Trust me, here she is, brought some snapshots down to show you. Her cheek near his sleeve, she studied a dozen village pictures. They were streaky, she saw only trees, shrubbery, a porch indistinct in leafy shadows. But she exclaimed over the lakes, dark water reflecting wooded bluffs, a flight of ducks, a fisherman in shirt-sleeves and a wide straw hat, holding up a string of croppies. One winter picture of the edge of Plover Lake had the air of an etching. Lustrous slide of ice, snow in the crevices of a boggy bank, the mound of a muskrat house, reeds in thin black lines, arches of frosty grasses, 
it was an impression of cool, clear vigor. How to be to skate there for a couple of hours, or go zinging along on a fast iceboat and skip back home for coffee and some hot weenies? he demanded. It might be fun. But here's the picture. Here's where you come in. A photograph of a forest clearing, pathetic new furrows straggling among stumps, a clumsy log cabin chinked with mud and roofed with hay. In front of it, a sagging woman with tight-drawn hair, and a baby bedraggled, smeary, glorious-eyed. Those are the kind of folks I practice among good share of the time. Nels Erdstrom, fine clean young Svenska. He'll have a corking farm in ten years, but now I operated on his wife on a kitchen table, with my driver giving the anesthetic. Look at that scared baby. Need some woman with hands like yours. Waiting for you. Just look at that baby's eyes. Look how he's begging. Don't. They hurt me. Oh, it would be sweet to help him. So sweet. As his arms moved toward her, she answered all her doubts with, Sweet. So sweet. End of chapter 2